This episode of In Good Company is brought to you by Grind, a cult coffee brand that since opening their first branch in Shoreditch back in 2011, have expanded across London, opening branches all over London that include espresso bars, cocktail bars, and even an international grade recording studio. And now you can enjoy Grind's excellent coffee at home, direct from their state-of-the-art coffee roastery in Bermondsey. Grind's coffee is sourced from across the world at better than fair trade prices, and the entire range, as well as all the packaging it comes in, is either compostable or recyclable, so they're also the more sustainable option as well. If you're looking for that cafe-quality caffeine fix from the comfort of your own home, head to www.grind.co.uk forward slash ingoodcompany now, and if you use the code ingoodcompany at checkout, you'll get 25% off your first three orders of Grind's Coffee Pod, Whole Bean or Ground Coffee subscriptions. Thank you very much to Grind. Hello and welcome to In Good Company, a podcast about culture and ideas hosted by me, Otegi Ragba, in which I have the pleasure of speaking to some of the most exciting and influential cultural voices of the moment. To coincide with the publication of my new book, We Need to Talk About Money, which is out now, every episode in this eight-part season is me speaking to various women about their relationships with and experiences of money and having those honest conversations that I think we're all dying to have but often don't get to. If you don't know much about my book, We Need to Talk About Money, here's a little overview. It's a part memoir, part cultural commentary, exploring my experiences with money over the years, and what those experiences say more generally about our relationships with money and our position in society, particularly as that relates to women. So it's a mixture of the personal, stories from my childhood, adolescence, my professional life, but it also touches on a lot of bigger issues, from class and privilege to feminism and race, beauty standards, toxic workplaces, how money can affect friendships, and above all, how people's experiences of those things might differ and impact their lives. You can buy it now in hardback, ebook and audio, with signed copies available from waterstones.com, and I've linked to all those retailers in the show notes. On today's episode, I'm talking to YouTuber and content creator Lucy Moon about the world of influencing, her own experiences of it, and the industry in general, how it works, how people make money from it, how much money people make from it. Lucy has been creating content online and being paid for it since long before many of us had even heard of the word influencer, or at least long before I had. And I really wanted to get her on the show to give an insider's account of an industry and lifestyle that commands a great deal of cultural fascination, while also, I think, not being fully understood by those of us who aren't directly involved in it. We covered a lot on this episode, what it's like participating in what I call the economy of the self, and the pressure that comes with having your professional and financial success contingent on being liked, the effect that that can have on your self-esteem and general happiness. We also talked about the gender bias and the scrutiny that many influencers experience and how Lucy deals with other people's negative perceptions of her job, as well as why some of those criticisms tend to arise and the ethical considerations that underpin Lucy's own choices. And of course, we talked about privilege, in this case, class and economic and racial privilege, and the role that that plays within the influencer economy, how it determines who is and isn't able to monetize their lives and how much they get paid to do so. A fascinating conversation, as I'm sure you'll agree. So here's Lucy. Just to kind of set things up for the rest of this interview, I really want to understand the basics of what you do and 
and how influencing really works. So my first question is, how did you get into this line of work and was it a conscious choice? Okay, (laughs) so influencing as a job did not exist when I started doing it. It was 2009 and I have always been a massive internet nerd. We've always had computers because my dad was a programmer. And so there were always like computers in the house. I was just always online and I loved social media. Like as an eight-year-old, I was making like a MySpace profile. I came across at 14, this guy called Charlie is so cool, like who was a YouTuber and also these guys called Vlogbrothers. And I thought, oh, this is so cool. This like talking to the camera and you create an audience and you have a community. This is amazing. And I just wanted to participate in the community. So at 14, I decided to start making YouTube videos. And then I just kept going. It was just like a very slow burn. I didn't have like a viral moment or anything like that. And then when I was kind of graduating university, my boyfriend at the time was a full-time YouTuber. And he was like, why don't you give it a go? Just give it a shot. And so somewhat tepidly, I was like, okay, I'll give it three months. I'll keep applying for jobs, but I'll treat YouTube as though it's my full-time job and see which one wins out. And very quickly, YouTube won out. And now I've been full-time for five years. So you started making money out of it pretty much straight away when you decided to treat it seriously. When you were graduating, you realised that you could make money off that. Yeah. At that point, it was an industry. And it was still, I mean, it is still the Wild West. But it was more established. And obviously, my ex-boyfriend was making a decent living. And I knew a lot of people who'd already done it before me and transitioned over to being full-time or at least part-time. So I felt quite confident that I could, which isn't the same as I was able to make a salary level amount of money as a freelancer when I first started. It took maybe four months, five months for it to really like feel like I wasn't going to just fall off the edge every month. (laughs) It took a long while. I got one contract, there was a six month contract and it was going to be paying like the equivalent of like a salary every month. And then I used that to move up to London. And what were you doing for that contract? Was that YouTube content? I was presenting a project with weirdly, oh my goodness, was it Southwest Rail? I was presenting a show for their Facebook page, which is super weird. So we get on a train and I'd actually interview some really cool people. (laughs) It was one day of work a month. And through that, I was able to keep myself afloat and move back up to London. So it was, it was really lucky timing. Otherwise, I would have had to stay at my parents' house. So you've never had a day job? I've had a lot of weird part-time work, but no, never a day job. That's so crazy to me. I feel like most influencers I meet or I'm aware of, they at least started out with a day job. Yeah. And then transitioned kind of part time and then full time to influencing. But pretty much from the get go, from when you graduated, this has been your main livelihood. Yeah, I definitely think you see a split as well now. So people my age and below are definitely in my bracket where a lot of them just go straight into YouTube work, (laughs) YouTube as a full time job. But then I think you actually are seeing a new trend emerge in the younger generation of people who realise that being a full-time creator can have more negatives than positives, whereas you can do a part-time job and be a creator online and be more satisfied and feel a lot less stressed. So we're seeing it more now. There are influencers who are full-time lawyers or like have training contracts. One of my friends, he's a super successful YouTuber, but he also works in publishing three days a week. So I'm seeing that a lot more recently. I think it's really good. Like, I think it's honestly maybe healthier than going in and being a full-time creator. 
Yeah, I'm intrigued because you said that there are some negatives to being a full-time creator. What are those negatives? What are the drawbacks? I think just the sheer pressure of being a freelancer with an audience. (laughs) I think that's the main thing. Imagine like every time you feel like you're maybe not being as successful, that is numerically displayed on the internet. That is definitely the main pressure I think the majority of us feel. I love that I'm speaking on behalf of influencers. <laughs> you are the spokesperson know. of the British influencer industry now. That's what I've, I've made it. you. Um, I, I want to get into that kind of emotional side of things a little bit further down the line, but just to kind of stay on topic around the nuts and bolts of it. What are your different revenue streams at the moment? My perception of it is that you have your YouTube ad revenue and your Instagram brand partnerships. Is that correct? Yes, those are two sources of revenue. I think people think it's going to be an upward trajectory when you start in terms of finances, when you become an influencer. And obviously the potential to make money is huge. However, I went in and my first year, can I talk numbers? Absolutely. Okay. My first year as a YouTuber, I made 40K and paid 11K tax. So Mm -hmm. take home was around like 33, Mm -hmm. I think on that year. (laughs) Well, around that, basically it was like 30K. And the second year, I was locked into a really terrible management contract and I made 18K that year. And so I'd luckily I've been quite cautious the year before, but I was just living off my savings basically that year. Can you explain that, the management contract? How did that affect your income? Because I thought managers and agents are supposed to get you more money. Yeah. So they generally that is how it works. Like we're very lucky, but obviously like the industry is very much in its infancy there are some quite bad actors, I think, out there. And everyone has horror stories from at least from my generation of YouTuber and influencer. Everyone has horror stories. And this particular company or these particular people just wouldn't pursue the work that was coming into our inboxes collectively. Mm-hmm. You know, it would just vanish in inverted commas or, oh, they dropped out or, oh, we're chasing it. We're, you know, we're still in contact with them it would just fall through. They were fine the first year, but the second year it was like they just stopped working. And because I was legally locked in, I couldn't pursue anything myself or negotiate anything myself or move to someone else. That is a bad contract. Yeah, that is how they work, (laughs) unfortunately. Now, with any big contract I get, obviously I get legal advice. Yeah, I don't sign anything like that, but I was 21. I just jumped in. Mm. Has your income grown over the years then? Has it become easier or harder to make a living so this was the the reason, sorry, off of all of that tangent. The reason I mentioned it was because in that second year, I obviously had this realization and I went, oh my goodness, I need multiple revenue streams. I've been relying on branded work and that is just not predictable enough. It's not stable enough. The payout can be larger than other revenue streams, but I need to feel like I'll be okay without it. So now over the past two or three years, I've worked towards having, I'd say like YouTube revenue of just like, as you said, the AdSense and then Instagram and YouTube branded partnerships. Those are two. And then I also release product or I'm working on product right now, but also I released merchandise. That was the third. And then speaking events and being on panels and stuff like that. All of that stuff was one. What else do I have? Oh, and affiliate links. So I use a platform called Reward Style, among others, to generate links And I get a small commission if someone is to use one and buy a product through my recommendation. And those, I'd say, are the main five. I have a question which you don't have to answer because I'm just trying to get a sense of how much you make. And is it above or below six figures? Oh, God. (laughs) Below. But um, the YouTubers who have more longevity, 
all of them make over six figures because they're very cleverly business minded. And is that your goal? Or do you think that's something that's feasible for you? I'd love the stability. That would be wonderful. It'd be really good. As we've talked about before, like offline, (laughs) I've been trying to like educate myself around money and like actually gain more understanding about how it works and stuff because I didn't come from a place where I knew anything at all. And also that learning curve happened in my business as well. So I just had to (laughs) get how it worked and like learn. Unfortunately, it's been very gradual, but I'm getting there. And as I get there, I tend to find more stability financially and be able to build on what I've already made. Do you feel financially stable now? Yes, I feel fine. I'm not worried, but it's really nice and sweet because it's a good way to make money. Once you're like established and like I have a manager who really helps me do a lot of that work as well. When something's that comfortable, I always think like, oh, should I make this change or should I make that change? And I'm like, no, 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 no. (laughs) You're financially fine. Just stick with this. It's safe. The more money you make or if you're at a level where you're financially comfortable, the kind of hunger to go out and pitch things or to go out and generate new business isn't there as much because it's not out of necessity because you've got enough to live off and to have a nice time. So it's very different from... I imagine maybe the work rate when you were just starting out and you're like, I need to get loads of jobs and contracts and I need to make sure I can pay my rent. If you now have that covered, I sometimes feel like that. Something that I've been conscious of like the past year or two, I often feel like I'm resting on my laurels financially. And I'm trying to make a few changes to up my game financially, but because I am doing okay and doing fine and making a decent living, the impetus to actually go out there and be really money hungry can kind of dry up slightly. I completely agree. For me as well, it's the fact that I found a level of success. So in general, online and in my job, and in a way like, because it's so stable, I'm not chasing to grow to the next size. I didn't really start it to gain a huge audience. You know, I didn't see myself ever having like a million followers or something. That's not really my goal. But it does mean that, you know, how much money you can make is reliant upon how much you can grow as a creator. And so there's definitely that dynamic of like, oh, I kind of wish I was more driven to grow in the other sense, like in the followers and the likes and the engagement. And what's the long term game plan business wise? Like, Do you think you will be able to make a living as an influencer for the next decade or two or the rest of your career? Because something that I'm really conscious of is that and you're probably conscious of it as well, is that. To an extent, you are slightly at the mercy of platforms and tech companies who Mm. could change their algorithm anytime. They could shut down and disappear. Do you have plan B? Well, well, (laughs) I don't think there's a day that goes by where any influencer doesn't think about this. Because, again, another thing I did early on was diversify which platforms I was on. Because I realised that YouTube is completely at the whim of an advertiser. Did you ever hear about the adpocalypse? No, that sounds familiar, but I don't know what it actually was. Can you explain? So in, I think it was about 2017 or 2018, this creator who's the largest or was the largest on the platform called PewDiePie made some videos which were anti-Semitic. That is hotly contested, but for the sake of argument, anti-Semitic. And it was reported on in some newspapers and some publications and loads of advertisers pulled out of advertising on YouTube because... They thought, well, your content moderation isn't strong enough. If you're not catching that your main creator is being anti-Semitic on your platform, why would we put our ad money there? And it obviously had a huge knock-on effect on all of us. So there were people who were making six figures a month on YouTube, and it was their only source of revenue was their AdSense, who made nothing for six months. 
And in turn, on top of that, it wasn't like, oh, the advertisers were going to come back and YouTube would be fine. YouTube started changing their policies. So they made content moderation so incredibly difficult and they would randomly demonetize entire channels. I know there were people who got paid off by YouTube to never mention it again, like big creators, because they had lost, you know, six months of income. To never mention that whole... Yeah, because obviously when these YouTubers were going through this quite scary experience, obviously from an incredible place of privilege, but they just lost their income one day, they were talking about it online and talking about it very loudly. And so I know YouTube paid people off to stop <laughs> stop them chatting about it. Um, but that was absolute chaos. No, no one feels like it's stable. Everyone feels like their job is vanishing. So what's your plan B? My plan B... It's a great question. I never really know. I'm just trying to take on projects. I do feel like this question doesn't get asked as much to people who work in podcasting or work in other types of entertainment or media. I guess maybe for like pop stars and stuff like that, people are asking that question to them. But the thing about YouTubers is they're basically like presenters, like radio presenters, I think, in my head. (laughs) So a lot of them transition through lots of different mediums. No one really just stays on YouTube anymore. And so I think it actually in itself as a job, as a creator, has a lot more longevity than it used to. But even considering that, a lot of people, and me included, start businesses. And that's the main way that people seek longevity is the hope that they will make a business that will not have them front and centre and not depend on them for marketing over time. I've definitely observed that. You mentioned earlier the sort of, I guess, emotional side and the pressure of having your income essentially dependent on, I guess, your personality or or yourself. I kind of think of this as like the economy of the self. And Mm. as an influencer, you are essentially selling yourself. Like Your livelihood is contingent on people liking you or the version of you that they see enough to like and subscribe and engage. And obviously, you know, making useful or entertaining content is also a big factor in that. But I think with influencers, the messenger is as important as the message. And I'd love to know what that does for your self-esteem and your emotional well-being, having your professional and financial success contingent on essentially public approval. First of all, I think I have many thoughts on this and so do all my friends who are creators in any form, on YouTube especially. Do you prefer the term creator as opposed to influencer? Yeah. Why is that? Because I think that's more representative of what we do. I don't think any, it's strange, isn't it? Because on Instagram, there are a lot of people who, especially in what I would say is like our adjacent industries, I guess, like beauty and fashion and homeware and interiors and stuff like that. A lot of their income is dependent on selling products in whatever sense that may be. But the vast majority of creators, I just don't really, I don't know. Influencers were just also a term not coined by influencers themselves. Mm. A lot of the writing on the industry uh, five or six years ago was 40, 50-year-old guys looking in and going like, hmm, hmm, <laughs> what's mm. that? Like the only dedicated journalist I can think of is Taylor Lorenz, who was active back then. It felt like we got given that name by like critical old men. <laughs> and by so, marketers as well. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Which obviously legitimized influencer marketing so much and benefited them so much. But yeah, I just think inherently we're creators. You're making stuff and connecting with an audience and building a community much more than you're doing anything else. Mm-hmm. I think it's inherently gendered as well. I mm-hmm. I know every every creator, no matter who they are, experiences 
the stress of having a number on a screen dictate your popularity and potentially your income as well. But I do think the pressure element and the constant fear of messing up is a gendered experience or weighted towards women experiencing that more so than men. And I think that dynamic has a huge impact on especially women who create online. And I would say that definitely impacts me as well, is not only the fear of like, oh God, am I losing popularity? Am I able to maintain this another year? What's going on here? Coupled with, oh my God, though, what if I just say something out of the blue? Don't completely consider what I've said and I get slated for it and that's the end, you know? And it becomes a bit of a pylon. Because it can happen to anyone, you know, obviously if you're running your mouth all the time, it's more likely to happen to you. But generally, (laughs) people mess up. People are imperfect and that is life. But unfortunately, the internet, as you talk about as well, is like, we've definitely reached some kind of peak of... I hate cancel culture. It's not cancel culture. Hysteria. Yeah, it's painful. This is going out a bit later on. But right now, the Israel-Palestine conflict is being discussed really heavily online. It's dreadful at the moment, the situation Palestinians are in. Obviously, it's been really bad for a really long time, but it's really hard right now. But people are asking creators to speak up on it. And I totally understand why. But it's a really difficult subject to talk about. People are getting it wrong left, right and centre as well. Watching that happen in the current climate on the internet is really difficult. It's obviously a minor issue <laughs> in amongst the greater picture. But yeah, it's very odd watching people who've never even heard of the issues at all sharing very simplistic infographics. It's just really odd. But yeah, in this climate, a lot of things can tip influencers over the edge into public distrust. And then also, it's worth mentioning, we've got these whole forums of people. So while it's not being said to our face, there's a Pandora's box on the internet of forums and forums of people under anonymous usernames, slating you or doxing you. Yeah, tattle, guru gossip. I've seen some horrendous things. And that is completely gendered. Like that pretty much exclusively is experienced by women and people in the LGBTQ plus community and especially black women as well and mothers they get it some of the worst I've seen do you think that's just straight up misogyny because what I was going to ask is do you think there's an element of misogyny in why influencer culture is so heavily criticized because it's also one of the few industries or career paths where women generally outperform men but then Mm. it's also really dismissed and reduced and influencers are treated as though they're vacuous and all these sorts of things and I detect a real element of misogyny in that but I wonder if you think the same yeah I completely agree with you I think it's the youth of the people doing it as well generally people are under 40 that's a generalization that are especially the rise of TikTok there's more varying ages of influencers but in general influencers are quite young so I I think that plays a big role but the largest role, yeah, I think is misogyny. And do those criticisms of influencer culture affect you or are you largely unbothered? I ask this because I've seen other influencers, there's one in particular who I think of, who has spoken and written about the fact that for years she felt really quite embarrassed to tell people that that's what she did for a living and she was kind of made to feel ashamed of it and when she was dating she wouldn't necessarily tell men that that's what she did and I think it can kind of go one of two ways you can either be completely unfazed by that and just think well this is my living or you can internalize that and I wonder which side of that divide you fall on 
it's something I'm actually trying to work on is the fact that I basically apologize for my job every time I bring it up, Mm. especially around people who have more noble jobs than me. So Mm. I met some of my friends, friends the other day, two of them were social care workers and one of them was a primary school teacher. And they turned to me and they're like, what do you do after talking about like working in Hackney? (laughs) And I was like, oh, you don't want to (laughs) know. It's difficult, isn't it? I've always felt as well about the money side of things, especially when I was younger, a lot of guilt and shame around the fact that I was making more than friends who were either still studying or really on the grind of like that, especially working in entertainment and on like minimum wage and that kind of stuff. I felt a lot of guilt around, but now I'm just trying to not. And also everything's leveled out a lot more since I'm 26 now Mm. and everything's leveled out. Have you had friends react in strange ways about some of the perks of your job? So money and freebies? Yeah. Oh God. Yeah, definitely. My job is like a complete novelty. And definitely at the beginning, in the first two years that it was full time, it made chatting to people. Whenever I would see people I hadn't seen in a while, people would be like, oh my God, what's it like being YouTube famous? Or you get introduced to new people oh my god that was the worst you go anywhere and you get introduced to people and they go this is Lucy she's YouTube famous or she's internet famous I don't want to have that chat a million times over with your mum mm. <laughs> do you know it's got a lot better now because the understanding of what it is to work in social media weirdly has increased even across the generations and people who don't really understand it still understand that it exists whereas before it was like I don't know I was like a unicorn <laughs> people had never seen it And always people ask you, oh, always, how much money do you make then? How do you make money? Are you sure you're going to be fine? (laughs) But not in necessarily a particularly positive way. No, no. As though it's a fad, which in fairness, the industry was like five years old. I do get why people were sceptical. But it was having those same conversations every time I met people. But it's very different now. I just think the world has changed a lot since 2020. And people now understand social media a lot more. Definitely. I want to talk about the ethics of being an influencer or a creator, because one of the main, I think, criticisms of this industry is that influencers make other people feel inadequate by portraying these really aspirational lifestyles. How do you feel about that? I agree. It's a challenge again, because I think a lot of those criticisms are leveled at Instagrammers. And Instagrammers specifically in fashion, beauty, lifestyle kind of niches. Whereas I don't necessarily think industries that are more focused on product. So for example, like in the men's demographics, like car influencers, for example, these men getting to drive these gorgeous cars all the time and stuff like that. I definitely do agree. But I actually think the influencers who are most successful over the long term are the people who are more relatable than they are aspirational. And people don't feel that same kind of pressure off of their relationship with those influencers, the relatable ones. But in terms of Instagram, you only see aspirational, really, of the people who have that as their main platform. And that is challenging. And I definitely feel it as well. I went round and met an influencer and we had a drink in her garden the other day. And I'd been following her for a while and we're chatting and I'm realising very fast that her life is not what she portrayed online. She is portraying a caricatured version of her life. She sees that as like a business. The way she shows herself is a completely brand friendly version. And I hadn't realised people actually did that. (laughs) I'm relatively honest online. What you see is what you get. But there are people who are able to separate themselves and a kind of character they play. And that was quite weird and unnerving. 
What were the differences, if you can say without kind of revealing too much, what were the kind of differences between the Instagram character she plays and her real self in inverted commas? Oh, just that she's a lot more nuanced, but also a lot more chaotic, but has an entire reputation of having everything together. That was the thing that really shocked me. There's just stuff like that. I just, yeah, I find stuff like that quite unnerving because I also am affected by that feeling of influencers being perfect and me wanting to live up to this kind of unattainable standard. So I think it is important to talk about. Did you know that around 29,000 plastic or aluminium Nespresso pods are sent to landfill every minute? But with Grind's compostable Nespresso pods, you don't have to worry about what your caffeine habit might be doing to the environment. Their pods are made entirely from bioplastic, and when composted, they'll break down in a matter of weeks. To enjoy the taste of cafe-quality coffee in the comfort of your own home, head to www.grind.co.uk forward slash ingoodcompany now and use the code ingoodcompany at checkout to get 25% off your first three orders of Grind's coffee pod, whole bean or ground coffee subscriptions. And now, back to the show. Well, that kind of brings me on to something that I wanted to talk about, which is privilege within the influencer economy and the role that that plays as it relates to class and race. Because something I don't think gets talked about a lot is the fact that class and race are real barriers to entry to becoming an influencer or a creator. And I think it doesn't get discussed because the general public doesn't necessarily see influencing or creating as a career path that everyone has a right to pursue. And so I don't think they're as concerned with the kind of equality of opportunity. Mm. There aren't, you know, access schemes for becoming an influencer in the way that there are for other creative sectors. Well, <laughs> well we will jump back to that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, are there? Yeah, there are, but they're run by the tech platforms. They prioritise diversity, but it's all very brand heavy. You know, it's like, what will make us look good? So I don't know how genuine that prioritising is. I mean, yeah, I don't feel like that can be particularly genuine just thinking about the business model of these tech platforms. Mm -hmm. But going back to what I was saying, I think particularly within the lifestyle sector, so travel, interiors, fashion, coming from money really helps you break into that industry and allows you to build an initial following. And I think a lot of successful influencers are really pretty secretive about that. So it's much easier to run an interiors account if you own your own house. And I think there's an expectation, you know, especially of young women in the public eye, that you'll kind of have this architectural digest worthy home. And these are like 20 something freelancers. It's mind boggling to me. And like, We've so chatted many... about this as well, haven't we? We have. Yeah, because <laughs> I was going to say this actually, I'm glad you brought that up because I remember you once told me that you felt like you had like slight imposter syndrome about maybe not living in like a nice enough house for an influencer. And I've definitely had that over the years. Like so many magazines, like when it comes to doing like press for my books, so many magazines have reached out and asked to shoot me at home. And this is when I was living with my parents. And I always had to put my foot down, partly because I just wanted to respect my parents' privacy. Yeah. Also because I was like, I'm living in my childhood bedroom. Like this isn't some glamorous design worthy home. And even now that I've kind of moved into my own place and I'm starting to decorate it, I'm really tempted to keep that going just out of sheer principle. Like I really do not like the expectation that you will have this sort of lifestyle. Um, So I'd love to get your take on that. As we were saying previously, like I say, it's one of the darker bits of that whole like aspirational Instagram thing, isn't it? People and the audience as well, they expect you to have your whole house together or your whole wardrobe together Mm. or whatever that may be. And it's a strange dynamic. I definitely feel that pressure a lot. And again, there's this assumption online that I come from like masses of wealth, (laughs) which is quite entertaining. 
but my family are just very normal. Like no one worked in the arts or in like design or anything. So where like, does that assumption come from then? And how have you become accent, aware of that? It's all my accent. And that's fine. I'm really lucky to have grown up in Tunbridge Wells. Like that's been so good for me. But the reason we were in Tunbridge Wells is my parents were working in Bromley and Uckfield. They put a pin on the map and they were like, let's move there. It's in the middle. And I don't think people, I don't know. It is really odd. I feel like I'm learning along with everyone else. I'm looking to influencers for inspiration. And I want to be someone who is super creative with their home and a tastemaker and stuff like that. But it, being completely honest, it's not something that was really on my mind until I was like 23. Yeah. So it's still like a learning experience for me as well. And I think the expectation is that you'll have everything together. But why would we? Also, who could afford that? But no, on the topic of privilege in the influencer world, when it comes to stuff like this, God, I don't even know where to begin. There is this, there's just so much privilege. I talk about just the fact that I could start vlogging at 14 because my parents bought me a camera. That's so much privilege. Mm. There's a reason that most vloggers who came up around 2012, 2013, 2014 are all middle class because they could afford to get cameras. And for a long time, I feel like that was kind of ignored and Again, like these programs that like YouTube would run, Twitter would run, Instagram would run. Part of that was they would buy equipment for people. Equipment's really expensive. And that's just one small dynamic of the levels of privilege, I think, that you need to be a creator or to get a leg up. Mm. And then, of course, there's race. I think racial pay gaps within the influencer economy are really well documented. I think there's been quite a lot of chatter about that, especially last year off the back of the Black Lives Matter protests yeah. after George Floyd was killed. And there's that Instagram account. I think it's literally called Influencer Pay Gap, yeah. which is documenting the difference between what white influencers were being approached or paid by brands and black influencers who very often weren't being paid. They were expected to kind of subsist off freebies. And I've even had this myself because, you know, I do the odd bit of commercial work and I'm very happy to DM people who I know have worked with X brand or DM people who I know are taking part in this project and be like, what are they paying you? Or things will come out down the line. Someone will do this project that I maybe turned down and I'll just know. And I'm like, there's no way that this person is not being paid for this. And that's the basis of, on which I was approached. And it's happened so many times to me. Seeing your tweets about it's really refreshing, actually, because it's something that just isn't discussed, like mm. not publicly. It's all behind closed doors. So when people actually address it publicly, it's I think it really helps. It holds brands to account. Mm. But I mean, besides the kind of obvious, which is just straight up racism and bias, why do you think brands think they can get away with paying black or minority influencers less? Because statistically, black and minority influencers probably less likely to have representation and likely to ask for less money. That, I think, is the crux of it. God, massive generalisations. But, like, specifically white men and then following down white women have been taught to either overvalue themselves or to push and be able to negotiate, I think. And, and they're taught, like, you, you know, inherently, like, you are worth this, you are worth that. And that maybe doesn't transcend so far as we go down, like, spectrums of privilege. I think that's a big one then there's the whole system like management are less likely to take on black creators just because of inherent bias pretty much everyone who works in the influencer industry is white that is pretty well understood <laughs> or like what from what I've seen that's what I've seen just the structures in place it looks like many other industries 
I definitely notice as well that there's just a lot of tokenism at oh, the moment. God, yeah. Like, yes. I don't think I've been on a brand event. Actually, no, maybe in very recent years, like late 2019. But if I ever went to a brand event, it would be entirely white women and then like one black woman or one Asian woman. And, and the same one. Do you know what? Yeah. <laughs> Just, I was going to be like, no, but actually, maybe. <laughs> There's like a handful of minority influencers who have kind of like broken the barrier mm. but they tend to be the ones that are used time and time again or approached time and time again by brands and, and I've seen yeah. it and they very much have this tick box mentality of like have one black one Asian and the rest are white I can't imagine the pressure as well on these women who are like I'm incredibly brandable right now people want to work with me I need to stay this good or this brand friendly all the time like it sounds silly but like to put your entire personality into a brand friendly box is just a lot of pressure to live day to day. And there's also the kind of, I think, personal considerations of knowing when you're being tokenized. Yeah. And I yeah. feel, because I, you know, I don't work with brands in that sense, but just various products I work on, if I feel like the right attitude isn't there, I feel empowered enough to be able to walk away from certain things. But also that's because my livelihood comes from lots of different things. You know, a lot of it comes from mm. my books. So I feel able to say well actually I don't like the way you guys operate as a company so I'm not going to work mm. with you but if your livelihood is entirely based off these kind of commercial opportunities it becomes a lot harder to just out of principle say no to stuff because you don't like the vibe yeah definitely and I think as well the women who don't have representation like professional like managers or agents I dread to think how they're spoken to as well because mm. You've got the added pressure of like being an influencer, being young. A 22-year-old black woman is going to be talked down to so, so terribly. In oh, I mean, I even have that at my big old age of 30. Oh, and I'm... having like a fairly, I think, robust platform. And I mean, as you know, I'm quite punchy, but I am still often quite surprised. Not in an arrogant way, but I'm like, do you know what, guys? I've done stuff. Like, I have a profile. <laughs> yeah. I bring a lot to the table and I'm still often surprised at the way people sometimes speak to me when they land in my inbox. And I think I have a lot of agency and I dread to think of how women who don't have agency and who feel the need to be polite in response, because that's the one thing I don't feel. If someone mm -hmm. is rude to me, either kind of in what they're actually saying or just in the setup of what they've approached, like there are some things I'm like, the fee you've proposed is rude. I feel quite able to say something about that. But yeah, I, I know that's not the case for all women, which is also why I kind of tend to be quite outspoken about it, because I feel like in this weirdly lucky position, at least now, right at the moment, where I'm just like, Do you know what, you have a lot of agency, so you probably need to say something on behalf of people who don't. It's really good of you to speak about it as well, because as you said, like it could theoretically like damage your reputation or whatever, you know, with the wrong people, but still. I'd love to know what my reputation is. But anyway, that's a slight tangent. I want to come back to ethics and ethical considerations. What are the ethical considerations you take into account with your platform and when you're working with brands? I try and be as ethically minded as I feel I can be whilst also acknowledging I'm a flawed person. My manager always says to me, like, you're one of the most like morally driven people who I work with. But yeah, I get yelled at online quite a lot for not being ethically driven enough. I think that's how you and I first started talking, actually, because I remember seeing you get yelled at for a tampon ad. Yeah. And it, in fairness as well, there's so much you can't say about what's going on behind the scenes. I'd signed a long term partnership. I was in that for a year, I think. 
And had I known it was going to take that turn, would I have signed in for a year? No. But was there anything I could do about it? Not really. So stuff like that, again, it's very murky. The waters of that world. Is it that you now think that that partnership wasn't ethical or is it that it wasn't worth the stick you got for it? Because that to me is quite terrifying. The idea that you might think something is ethically sound, but because you're going to get so much shit for it that you would then be like, well, that doesn't... Because I would say in terms of my ethics and the things that I do, it's very much dependent on how I feel about it and fuck what everyone else thinks. Oh, really? Oh, no, I I turn stuff down all the time because while it might be fine for me, I would get yelled at. I feel like I've been incredibly negative in this entire podcast, but I would like to say something I massively appreciate is that my audience are so switched on. They're pretty much all women who are between like 18 and 30 and they're conscientious and they're kind and they care so much about stuff. But unfortunately, that brings in the like 10% or like 20% of people who are young a lot of the time, very young, and don't really have much concept of nuance, especially around sustainability. And that definitely has an impact on my work. They might think they're just one person shouting into the void, but when there's 25 of you and you're getting 100 likes on each comment, that's having a big impact on what I can and can't do. And also how I feel about myself, like it leads to a lot of guilt. I think as well. I take the assumption all the time that my moral stance or how I feel ethically can change and Mm. that I can be wrong. And while I feel a lot more confident in the past two or three years as to what my principles are and I'm much better at responding and defending myself when I do think I'm right, I'll never say an outright no to people if they have criticisms of a job I've done in terms of like the moral or ethical stance of it. But in general, when I was younger taking it back to the actual work side of things when I was younger I did compromise on a few jobs that I I don't necessarily regret because I needed money whereas you know it's a luxury to be able to be picky so um, I work with Barclays for example and I actually only ethically bank and I always have so that's one and I worked with Nespresso signed the contract didn't think about it obviously it's Nestle and that was a bit in my opinion but now I'm able to be a lot more selective And I still get it wrong sometimes. I worked with a brand who market themselves to be very sustainable and arguably aren't that good. And people went in at me for it. And so I took the whole thing down and donated the fee to charity. And I actually might have to pay that fee back (laughs) because they've requested it back. So that will be fun. (laughs) But again, these are, you know, I'm lucky to be able to afford to take that risk. I'm glad that you brought up sustainability, actually, because... I do think there is a bit of a tension in the fact that you talk a lot about sustainability and ethical consumption. And I know that you are conscious of the brands that you work with, but a good number of your Instagram partnerships or brand partnerships or just the concept of it. Some of your job does essentially involve encouraging people to buy more stuff. So Mm. I know that you're selective with what you promote, but they're also, let's say, just say like a regular high street brand. And that doesn't fit into... I'd say, the kind of principles of sustainability and ethical consumption. So a bit of a difficult question, but how do you square those two things? It's something I think about a lot. I have thought about it a lot, a lot. My attitude to sustainability, I think it's odd. I think I got pigeonholed into talking about sustainability because I was one of the only people who actually spoke about it at all in any context. But I like to think, maybe I did naively when I was a bit younger, but like, I don't really talk about it like I want to be zero waste or I want to be seen as sustainable because I don't. I shop fast fashion. I try and limit my consumption, but in a way that's 
way more holistic and way more manageable. Mm. I also buy secondhand and like, I feel like it should just be very normal for these things to be a part of your life. But yet it becomes a buzzword. And I kind of feel like I maybe shouldn't have spoken about it so much when I was younger about sustainability, because I felt like it pigeonholed me quite heavily into this idea that I thought of myself as this huge sustainability queen when I just don't. I just think we should talk about it more. And now people expect sort of 100% adherence. Yeah, and I've never been 100% adherent and I would never claim to be. Every week I get messages saying, how can you call yourself cruelty-free if you still wear leather and you still eat meat? And I'm like, I know exactly where I stand on these things. And I generally don't talk about it too much online because I'm not here to try and start arguments. But yeah, in general, I just try and be careful about who I work with in terms of the sustainability stuff and try not to be too much of a hypocrite. In general, I'm way more likely to take on work that doesn't involve selling something. So like weirdly, I often work with a company called Verto, who I used to work for part time, who have a platform where they consensually take data from young people and use it to shape policy, I guess, sell it ultimately to the UN or whoever to like governing bodies and try and help them make policies that directly affect young people in a positive way. And they're doing loads on climate change at the moment. So I work with them like relatively regularly. And people like that, obviously, I feel much more comfortable doing that than I do around necessarily just stuff that involves selling products. But yeah, it's, it's a hard balance to strike, but I would never claim to have it sorted. I think it's much more dangerous when you see those influencers who are like, I am fully sustainable. Here's all my zero waste content. And then <laughs> they have to also sell things. I'm like, how are you doing that mentally? We're all trying our best, I think. Yeah, exactly. And, and nuance is lost on the internet. So... Oh, of course the internet is the place where nuance goes to die so it, oh my god yeah and like I've made peace with that like I've completely made peace with the fact that no matter what I do or say to do with anything that is to do with a sensitive topic or to do with ethics I'll get yelled at from either side and someone will always say I'm not doing enough do you think perhaps you're too nice and that you invite <laughs> no I'm I'm being serious and I'll <laughs> let, let me land <laughs> And that you perhaps invite that. Because, you know, a joke that I have with one of my friends is that I like to drag someone online, let's say, every quarter. I love it when you drag people online. I do. Just make an example of people just to be like, I am not your fucking age, mate. Like, just because I share stuff openly and I have a bit of a platform and, you know, I'm quite honest about my life. Do you not think that you have the right to dictate to me how I live and I genuinely think it kind of keeps most of the trolls at bay because I think people know that if it comes to it I will clap back and I bring that up because some of my friends who get a lot of shit online I'm like I think you allow people to get too over familiar I think you actually haven't put up enough boundaries and so I wonder whether you think that might be the case with you which is inherently hard to do because of the nature of what you do as a creator but I think that's a possibility. I used to chat about that a lot more I used to be like look I can't be your ethical princess or whatever the case may have been. I think part of the reason that I'm in this position is because I used to share so much of myself on the internet. I was very vulnerable. Like a lot of people found me through making videos, well, a video, one specific video about alcohol and I'm getting sober. Yeah. So people just felt like they could say those things to me. And then I started being like, hey, you can't say that stuff to me. Like, like some of this stuff is awful. I brought more 
I realized, I think 2018 was the year I was like, I'm keeping my nose down and I'm not commenting on stuff. And often people now will fight my battles for me, which is wonderful. People in my audience will just be the voice of reason against the idiots. That's always nice. It's really, really good. That did not used to happen. (laughs) Just to finish up, I want to end with a sort of rapid fire round of questions about money. Answers don't have to be too long or they can be. You can get into it if you want, but I'm just going to ask you a couple of questions. The first one is, when was the last time you did something just for the money? I was thinking about this and actually a job I'm working on right now, I am doing just for the money because they're just being really off and on about it and it's dragged out for like three months now and the money would help me decorate my house. (laughs) So I'm just sticking it out for that. That is probably the last time I've done something purely for money because I would be pulled out right now if it wasn't good money. I think I do things just for the money all the time now that I come to think of it. I'm like, would I do this if I wasn't being paid? No. Like there are a very small number of things that I would do if I wasn't being paid or if I wasn't being paid well. Yeah, definitely. I think that's work. I don't want to work. I don't want to work. Like, and there's a lot of stuff as well that like, you know, is directly unrewarding until you make some money from it or get some kind of validation from it. Like I think we've literally (laughs) just explained the concept. Of work. Okay, next question. What's the best money decision you've ever made? To get an accountant. First thing I did when I became freelance, I knew I'm bad with numbers. And I got an accountant and he actually does like nearly every influencer. He's called Sam and he's amazing. Love Sam. I very much agree that having an accountant as a self-employed person is imperative. So yes, love that. What is the worst money decision you've ever made or your biggest money mistake? Not seeking legal advice when I was stuck in that contract is one of them. I'm just trying to think. I, I feel like I had a really good one. Maybe I don't. I mean, that sounded like a pretty shitty situation. Oh, honestly dreadful. And being gaslit as well constantly by them. I think a year of gaslighting doesn't do much for your confidence around money. Okay, next question. Is this where you thought you'd be financially at this point in your life? And how deliberate has that been? I think it's quite hard to say because I didn't think about money in these kind of contexts when I was How old up. are you? I'm 26. Okay. So I'm still relatively, like, when you're in your you 20s, you can make any amount of money. <laughs> like, you know, you've got friends who are, like, developers. Like, we've got this friend who's, like, you know, making software for big banks and goodness knows how much he makes. Then you've got people who work in, especially people who work in music. My friends who work in music are absolutely taken advantage of. And everyone's the same age. So it just varies so much. So, no, I didn't have any expectations of how much money I would make. And also, I don't see my business money as my money. Mm. So what I pay myself in a salary versus what my business makes feel completely separate. Yeah, same. Although that that did change when I started thinking about buying a flat when I bought a flat because suddenly I was like to my accountant, I was like, all the money in the business is mine. And I was like, how do I get it out? <laughs> that is exactly how, so how do I legally get at it? And it was a real process. So <laughs> that will change if and when you decide that you want to I'm saving month by month for, I know. for a house, right? So I'm, I'm on that journey. But my God, when it comes to it, if they're like, we just need like extra five grand, I'm like, yes. <laughs> oh, mate, I absolutely ransacked my business. So. I can't wait. <laughs> what did you learn from your parents about money? I learned to be incredibly cautious. All of my extended family are incredibly cautious around money and none of them have ever been self-employed or started businesses. It can be a negative impact. They can have a lot of fear around money as well. They never invested. They never did anything that it was potentially considered risky even if that risk was very low. So I was very lucky. I learned from my parents a lot of stuff around avoiding getting in debt, for example, or anything like that. 
I really appreciate their caution in hindsight, but I do also secretly wish that I'd had some kind of money expertise <laughs> beyond just don't get into debt. I think that's a really big bit of money expertise, to be honest, especially as a young mm. woman. I think it's something like one in four young women are in debt or require credit cards to make ends meet month oh, to month. So awful, it's, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's really, really easy as well, just in terms of lifestyle and consumption and modern yeah. pressures to end up in debt. So I think that's that's a pretty Definitely. good lesson to have learned. I was going to ask whether you're a saver or a spender, but I feel like I already know the answer to that. Oh, God, a reluctant saver. I, I <laughs> <Aren't we all? laughs> naturally I want to spend but then I also I've got friends who can't go into town into like central London without buying stuff I'm not like on that level you know I'm not doing weekly cos orders or anything but not that there's any shame in that but I am cautious and afraid of being poor <laughs> I don't know if that's the answer we were going no, for I mean, but, it's the exact same um, it's pretty much the entire message of my book <laughs> which I can't wait to read by the way I only arrived last week so I haven't cracked it open yet I just finished Obama's biography oh my um, god you're going from Obama to... <laughs> I feel honored it was 29 hours long <laughs> May I I think I have a copy of that somewhere like the physical copy and much as I want to read it I just don't know when that's going to happen so very impressed this is definitely lighter <laughs> yeah. than that do you read your audiobook sorry yeah, I'm do. really tangenting yeah no it's cool I do I do Oh, maybe I'll listen then. Maybe you will. Back on topic. What's the most expensive thing you've ever bought? Do you know what? I haven't actually made many expensive purchases. Oh, maybe my bed frame or a holiday. Oh my God. I know. I went on a really expensive holiday accident because I planned badly. Um, (laughs) I'm not good with money. That's the other thing as well. Like, you know, for all this, like, oh, I'm cautious. I'm a saver. But like, I'm not good with it. I accidentally just booked a really bad holiday and we ended up spending like, considering it was like, five days in Greece we put away like a thousand two hundred quid and that was not acceptable for the spending money no of of just like everything all in all but like you know boats getting to the airport bad taxi planning (laughs) maybe I'm just really bougie but I feel like 12 oh god I'm probably gonna get so much shit for this but I feel like 1200 pounds for 1200 each oh yeah sorry my bad See. Yeah, you fucked that up. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I thought you meant 1200 <laughs> altogether, all in for two people. And I was like, oh, I think that's pretty reasonable. Yeah, you fucked up. Especially because traveling in a couple cuts a lot of costs. Like, yes. I'm conscious because I travel solo a lot. And I'm always like, oh, if I had someone to split this hotel bill with. So, I mean, yeah. Yeah. And, and just things like I, I accidentally messed up the dates. So, for the last night, we didn't have anywhere to stay. So, we had to book somewhere randomly. Stuff like that. Oh, I'm just don't leave me to book your holiday like okay. I'm just not worth it noted <laughs> and my final question what is your money mantra oh my goodness I have absolutely no idea I don't have one I don't have one I give it to Sam that's my <laughs> call Sam find out what he says about it is that your boyfriend no that's my I know sorry <laughs> no I would not I was like that's quite retro of you um <laughs> No, God, Call no. Sam. I think that is a good money mantra. Speak to your accountant. Yeah, yeah, basically. Speak to your accountant. Oh my God, no. My money mantra is put 25 to 30% in for tax. If anyone who's freelance listens to this, please take that one thing away because there are so many influencers who have no money education and don't save for tax and end up getting into thousands in debt with HMRC. Put away 25 to 30% for tax, please. Perfect. 
Thank you so much, Lucy, for joining me today. This has been a very enlightening conversation and I'm really, really pleased that we were finally able to make it happen. Thanks for having me. This has been lovely. And that's it for this week. Thank you for tuning in. If you've enjoyed this conversation, then I think you'll really enjoy my book, We Need to Talk About Money, which is a blend of memoir and cultural commentary all about money and is available now in hardback, ebook and audio with signed copies available from waterstones.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Otegauagba. That's O-T-E-G-H-A-U-W-A-G-B-A. And please do leave a positive review or rating for the podcast if you're so inclined, as it really does help give the show a boost. See you next week. reminder that you can get 25% off your first three orders of Grind's at-home coffee pod, whole or ground coffee subscriptions by heading to www.grind.co.uk forward slash ingoodcompany and using the code ingoodcompany at checkout. Then espresso compatible coffee pods are fully compostable, making them the more sustainable option for coffee lovers everywhere.